Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I don't even have to go in. Sometimes it's just on the outside. I get this pressure on my chest and in my throat, kind of. It almost feels like it's sort of closing off, like it's hard to breathe. Like very, very heavy. Everything just gets very heavy. And I always feel like, mm, something's not right in here. Something's off. I'm Alyssa. And I'm Hadley. We're two interior design editors obsessed with the paranormal. This Halloween, we're stepping away from the beautiful homes we usually write about to tell a different kind of story. From cursed cottages to abandoned estates, we're uncovering the twisted histories of America's most notorious homes. So lock your doors and leave the lights on. This is Dark House. <laughs> hey guys, welcome back to week three of Dark House. If you're new here, my name is Alyssa, my co-host is Hadley, and we are researching the most haunted homes in America. This week I picked the house, but Hadley still doesn't know which one it is yet, and I'm about to tell her. Do you have any guesses before the big reveal? Well, I thought about it. And I know you looked at my article about haunted houses for ideas. So that plus the clues about Elvis and then Calabasas tells me to go zoom in on LA. I'm, I want to say that it's either the Los Feliz murder mansion or the Jean Harlow house. Okay. You would get it right on your first try. Wait, what? It's the Jean Harlow house. Oh my God. I've always wanted to do a deep dive on it and just didn't have the time. So thank you for doing the heavy lifting and researching all of this. And I just have to say, I'm very proud of myself for guessing that. I'm proud of you too. And also, you're very welcome for doing the research. I actually, like, it didn't really feel like research to me because I'm just, I'm obsessed with pop culture. And this house, like this story, it is just peak Hollywood mystery. So for anyone listening who isn't familiar with the house yet, it gets its name from the original owners, Jean Harlow and Paul Byrne. So Jean was a young actress and Paul was a movie producer. Um, they got married in the summer of 1932, but then two months later, Paul was found dead at their home in Benedict Canyon, which is just north of Beverly Hills. Wait, okay. I don't want to interrupt, but I'm interrupting. Two months? That's crazy. No, I know. Two months. Like how short? That's so crazy. But then it gets crazier because the next person to own the house also suffered an untimely death, which could just be a coincidence, but there are rumors that Paul Byrne's ghost returned to the house, I guess, is like a warning of some sort. But I mean, like with all ghost stories, the facts are kind of murky. And for this story in particular, it's really hard to tell like what is haunted and what is just like Hollywood legend. Totally. But I think that's what makes it so good. No, it is. It is. And that's honestly why I picked it. But I mean, there's also the Manson connection, which shocks me to this day but that's getting a little bit ahead of myself so why don't we jump in yes please let's all right we are going to hollywood Basically, the first half of our story takes place in 1932. And around this time, Hollywood is like 
still in its infancy. So I didn't know this, but found out when I was researching that prior to 1910, films were really like predominantly filmed in the Northeast. Um, Spoiler, that didn't work out. LA had cheap workers, weak unions, and year-round sunny weather, so it offered a lot more filming locations. and Perfect place to exploit, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So by 1920, 80% of the world's films were being made in California, and LA was becoming like the center of the film industry, which I think is one of the reasons why by 1930, the city's population reached 1.2 million people. So like way bigger than Villisca, Iowa, which we talked about last week. But pretty much from the very, very beginning of Hollywood, it's always been full of drama and gossip. And this story was probably one of the industry's biggest scandals at the time. Yeah, definitely. So I'm going to tell you everything that happened, but I feel like we should introduce the house first. Cool. So Paul built the two-bedroom, two-bathroom single-family home in 1930. So in addition to the main house, there's also a carriage house, and that's supposedly where their staff lived. The way it's set up is that the carriage house is close to the street, whereas the main house is like set back on the property. It's like nestled in the trees. So it seems very private. As for the architecture, it definitely has like spooky elements to it. So the exterior is some sort of cross between like craftsman, Tudor, Bavarian style, but basically picture like the kind of houses you hear about in fairy tales, like very snow white. There's wood beams on the outside of the house honeycomb glass in the windows. There's even a turret, like the the round thing on a castle, which I thought was so random. But the creepiest thing on the outside of the house, I think, are the faces that Paul Byrne had MGM craftsmen carve into these. Yeah. Like faces? Faces. There's four beams that like protrude out of the house and on the end of each beam is a face. Ugh. So somebody is, I think in a video I saw, somebody was like, they stare down like gargoyles. And I'm like, okay. But a gargoyle is one thing. These are human faces. And people guess about who the faces are, but apparently Paul told friends they're the faces of four people closest to him. He named Barbara Lamar, Douglas Fairbanks Jr., and Carrie Wilson, but he never revealed the fourth. Keep that in mind. Do we know who the... Should I, does it matter who the other people we don't, are? We don't know. Okay, okay. The fourth one, it'll come back up. Okay, okay. If I don't remember to tell you, ask me about it at the end. Okay. There aren't many photos inside the house back then, at least that I could find, but we do know that the ground level by the pool enters into a changing room. And then there also appears to be a living room with this like large stone fireplace and a grand staircase with like an ornate wooden banister. I also saw a photo that shows that like the whole ceiling is like exposed wood and beam and and rafters. So it gives the whole place sort of this like cabin in the woods vibe, which I think anybody who likes scary stories and scary movies, you hear cabin in the woods and you think run. Yeah. So hopefully that helps you visualize the house. And the reason it's even so famous, like aside from the tragedy that we're going to get into is mainly because of Jean. So I feel like we should start with her. Yeah. Tell me more about her. She's essentially like the original blonde bombshell, but we're going to get more into that later. The actress Jean Harlow was born Harlene Harlow Carpenter on March 3rd, 1911 in Kansas City, Missouri. But side note, Jean Harlow is her stage name and it's also her mother's name. Like she took her mom's Hmm. name as her stage name, which I think is really weird. That could be pretty confusing. I'm just going to call her mom, 
Mother Jean whenever she comes up in the story. Okay. So the details of her early life just aren't really relevant to our story. So I'm going to give you the Sparks Note version. So her parents get divorced. She moves to Hollywood, then to Chicago. She elopes at 16 with a 23-year-old bond broker, moves back to LA, decides to pursue acting, which her husband does not approve of. So they get a divorce. Done. Can you imagine at 16 being like married to a bond broker and then divorced? No, like not even close. (laughs) No. So after working for two years as an extra and in some like small supporting roles, Harlow gets her big break in the 1930 aviation movie Hell's Angels. This is what made her a household name. Like Jean and her, quote, glowing white hair were all anyone could talk about. Um, And I think when most of us think like platinum blonde or Hollywood bombshell, we think Marilyn Monroe, maybe Madonna, but Jean Harlow was the OG. Um. Back to the story. Here's where Paul Byrne comes in. Okay. So back in the day, the way Hollywood worked was basically that actors and actresses signed contracts with production companies. And once you're in a contract with the production company, you only work on that company's films. So in 1930, after Hell's Angels, Gene is signed with Howard Hughes. But Hughes like unpredictable and unreliable. And a whole year goes by without him writing or producing anything for Gene to star in. So her friend, MGM producer Paul Byrne, convinces Hughes to start loaning Jean out to like other studios. And so she takes on like a couple small but key roles in films like Warner Brothers' The Public Enemy and Columbia's Platinum Blonde before Hughes sold her contract to MGM for $60,000. And it's said that like Paul Byrne was behind that sale. He also believed in Jean and saw her as more than just like this Um, sex symbol and just a pretty face only good for her body and he really fought for her to get the lead role in a movie called Redheaded Woman which came out in 1932 so this is her first like foray away from her signature blonde hair but then also it's the first movie where she's able to showcase her comedic talents aka anything besides just being like sexy so he he fought for her to have that role and I think From like these few details alone, you can see that he was really influencing her career and you can see why she would probably feel a connection with him. But despite all of that, Paul may have been hiding a huge secret from her. So more on that in a minute, but just quickly first, here's what you need to know about his life before Jean. Okay. Paul Byrne was born in Wandsbeck, Germany on December 3rd, 1889. So he's a little older than her, right? 20 years older than her. Okay. (laughs) I think, if I, if I did that math right. He moved to the U.S. when he was nine. In the early stages of his career, he worked for like theater companies in New York. But eventually he moved to Hollywood and worked his way up the ranks at Metro Goldwyn Mayer, a.k.a. MGM. So now that you have the understanding of like the two key players, let's fast forward. In June 1932, Paul Byrne and Jean Harlow filed their intent to be married Some people were confused by the pairing, for one, because of the age difference. So she was like 21 or 22 at the time, and he was, I believe, 42. Then it's also because she's like this Hollywood megastar sex symbol, and he's kind of like, kind of squirrely, kind of short, kind of ugly. But nonetheless, I did see this like quote from the New York Times that said, the marriage was hailed at the time as the perfect culmination of Hollywood romance. So looks aside, I guess it did seem to make sense to some people. Hmm. I mean, yeah, the power, the power dynamic there makes sense to me. One is the like 
bombshell and the other one is like actually has real power because he makes the decisions. Yeah. On July 2nd, 1932, they get married in the living room of Harlow's parents' house. Um, I skipped over this, but Mother Jean remarried at some point. His name's Marino Bello. I, I think he's in the mob. Um, I, I read that a couple times. I believe it. I feel like the LA mob was like, there's a lot going on there at this time. So yeah, probably. So at the wedding, they're like surrounded by their colleagues from the movie industry. I mean, it really, it sounded like a nice time, but here's where it gets dark. Literally two months after the wedding, on September 5th, 1932, Paul Byrne was found dead in their home at 9820 Easton Drive. Byrne was found naked with a single gunshot wound to the head and a 38 caliber revolver in his hand. His body was discovered by house staff who immediately summoned not the police, but MGM executives. But like, can you imagine if now you did that, you would be an accessor? And an, I almost just said accessory. <laughs> an accessory. <laughs> I guess. I mean, listen, it's going to get shadier from here. The studio bigwigs are there for more than two hours before they finally oh call God. the police. Yeah. Oh. They also finally call Byrne's wife, Jean Harlow, to inform her of his death. And she was at her parents' house where she'd been since the night before. Here are a couple things that people had said. Um, some say that they were supposed to have dinner at Mother Jean and Marino Bellows and that Paul was supposed to meet Jean there, but he just never showed up. Some say he stayed home to get work done. Others say they got in a huge fight and that's why she left. I don't know, but like whatever the truth is, Jean was not home when Paul died. Can I just ask really quickly, her alibi was her family then, right? Like her parents. Yeah. I'm, yeah. And also too, the staff could probably back that up that she wasn't huh. there. Cause I also think some so of for, the staff went with her. Do we trust the her. staff? I just, it, seem, it seems very, very solid that like she wasn't there. Okay. Um, okay. Nothing I read questioned that. So it said that in reaction to the news, Jean kept repeating, isn't this awful? Isn't this too terrible? And she also was reported to be very ill and under the watch of physicians and nurses for the days after the tragedy. Now, hmm. when the police arrive to the scene, they find what appears to be a suicide note from Paul. The note reads, Dearest dear, unfortunately, this is the only way to make good the frightful wrong I have done you and to wipe out my abject humiliation, Paul. Then there's like a, like a PS. You understand that last night was only a comedy. Ugh, That's the note. Full body chills. Ugh, I hate that. Yeah. But almost immediately, Byrne's death was ruled a suicide. I'm pretty sure the investigation was two days long. When questioned by the police, Jean stated that she could give no reason for her husband's suicide. She also denied that the couple had been fighting. So even though police were confident in closing the investigation and ruling the death a suicide, they had to search for the motive and they ended up uncovering a pretty big secret. At the time of his marriage to Jean Harlow, Byrne was technically still married to his first wife, a woman named Dorothy Millette. According to Byrne's sister, he met Millette in Toronto when they were both working as actors in a theater company, and then they got married and moved to New York City. But shortly after, Millette had some sort of mental breakdown, and she was then sent to a sanitarium. It was while she's at the sanitarium is when... Byrne moved to Hollywood, but he continued to support her financially from there. 
good news is she recovered and she moved into the Algonquin Hotel in New York City, where she lived for the next 10 years. Again, Byrne allegedly paid for all of her hotel bills. So that's nice. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then in 1932, she moved out of the Algonquin and had her trunks shipped to the Plaza Hotel in San Francisco. She stayed at the Plaza for four months until checking out on the morning of September 6th, 1932, the day after Paul was found dead. So from there, she boarded the Delta King River boat. But the next morning when the boat docked, Millette didn't disembark. And a week later, on September 14th, her body was discovered floating in the Sacramento River. And based on eyewitness accounts, it's believed that she jumped overboard, distraught over losing her husband and the financial support after like being written out of his will when he married Jean Harlow. So, okay, you said that like they called Jean Harlow a few hours after he was found. Mm -hmm. Then was it immediately released to the press and it like was on papers by the time she would have checked out or like how would she have known? I know that in our day and age, like you'd see it on Instagram, like maybe five minutes after, but like back then, do you think she could have known already? Well, that's a great question, Hadley, because... It reminds me of Natalie Wood too, but okay, go. Tell me why it's a great question. We're going to come back to this. Let me just finish up Jean's story so that that, that's done. Okay. So production on the film that Jean was working on at the time, Red Dust, could go on for 10 days without her, but she did eventually return to work and finish things up. Sadly, she'd only live for another five years. On June 7th, 1937, Ugh. Jean Harlow died of uremic poisoning at the age of 26. What is That's that? That's younger than us. Yeah. Oh, wait. What is that? It means acute kidney failure. Additionally, there's like stories about how she got all four wisdom teeth out at once mm-hmm. around this time as well. Like an infection and, or something. Yeah. And they were messed up. Okay. Also, the blonde hair, they had to use like bleach and Clorox like they were they were mixing a lot of stuff to keep her hair that color and so that could have played into it like there was a number of different things that could have come into it so here we are with three tragic deaths of our main characters but this is Hollywood so there's rumors and theories circulating and a lot of people start to question whether or not Paul Byrne's death was actually a suicide or if he was murdered. So here we come back to Dorothy Millette. So there's a lot of people think that she did it and that the studio executives that were there just covered the whole thing up. Paul's brother says that Jean Harlow knew about this wife. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. But Marino Bello insists that she didn't. So this Bello man is also like, okay. All up in her business. As far as I can tell, she never even comments on it at all. Like she says she doesn't know, she has no reason for his suicide, never says anything about it again. Something else that I skipped before I got to her death is that she had a third marriage to a cameraman. His name is Harold Rawson. And that's another marriage that like lasted a year, but Mm. it was like widely recorded or reported that the studio put her up to it to avoid scandal. So here's another finger pointing towards the studio of kind of controlling the whole narrative. And so there are a couple like public claims made by other not MGM execs or like other screenwriters in Hollywood, basically backing the theory that it wasn't suicide and the studio covered it up. Samuel Marks, who was another executive at the time, 
He wrote this book called Deadly Illusions, Gene Harlow and the Murder of Paul Byrne, where he concludes that Byrne was murdered by Mullet. And he's like trying to clear his friend's name because they really muddied him up. They crafted this whole story and then they had the autopsy tweaked to basically say that Paul was lacking in the... He had a small dick? Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, a teeny. Okay. So they crafted this whole narrative that he was impotent. He wasn't fit for like... How would they know that from the autopsy? Basically in the autopsy, they just said like he had like, like, a, like a micro penis, like so small that he couldn't <sighs> actually have sex. And so then like... They put that in the autopsy? Yeah. They're making it look like, you know, he marries Jean Harlow thinking like if I marry like the hottest girl in Hollywood, it'll solve my problem. But then they get married and he's still unable to perform. And so then he's so devastated and embarrassed, he kills himself. Regardless of the of the cause of death here, I feel like that is just so disrespectful to somebody who dies by suicide to like to distill the problem down to like, oh, and he like was insecure about his sexuality. Like, yeah. So here's something even more interesting. In the November 1960 issue of Playboy magazine, screenwriter Ben Hecht said outright that Paul Byrne's murder was covered up and made to look like a suicide by MGM execs in order to protect Harlow's career. So the article got so much attention that it actually prompted the L.A. County District Attorney, William B. McKesson, to reopen a 28-year-old case. He starts to interview anybody who might know anything. But a couple of days after the article comes out, Hecht says that his story was based all on rumors and gossip. He says, I have no evidence whatsoever. My report was based on a story that has been circulating in Hollywood for a long time. And so then McKesson closes the new investigation, which, by the way, had no new findings. So those are just two of the more public claims. But basically, there's just been tons of speculation that Paul was murdered and that Dorothy Millette was somehow involved. But there are also theories that she was a victim. Like there are some people who say that she actually didn't die by suicide, but that the studio sent someone after her. That's what I think. That's why I was like, Natalie Wood. Well, because if Gene didn't know about her, the only person who could come out and be like, hey, he had a wife after his like, if, if it was suicide would be her. So then they need to get rid of her. But there are just like so many theories, like the theories go on and on. Like supposedly some of the house staff reported finding a woman's bathing suit um, out by the pool that was not Jean Harlow's size and finding like two wine glasses. There are a couple like eyewitness accounts who saw a woman leaving the house hmm. at, after the time of his death. So like I said, Samuel Marks argues this in his book that Dorothy Millette is the one that um, killed him. And, and in that storyline, or like at least a version of it. But what if it's like a random woman who we haven't even looked at yet and like and then he misses the dinner. Somehow Bello hears about it, is protective of his like stepdaughter, sends someone to kill him. Like there's so many random theories because they didn't ever investigate it properly. You could make up anything and it could be like, yeah, maybe. I mean, we're never going to know. What we do know is now the house is tainted, but its story does not end with Gene Harlow and Paul Byrne. Hmm. In 1963, three years after the controversial Playboy article, the house was sold to a new owner, celebrity hairstylist Jay Sebring. So 
We've jumped ahead 30 years in Hollywood, and by the 60s, rock and roll is everywhere. Yeah, that's a good point. And just to bring it back to Elvis, since that's apparently my new favorite reference and his contemporaries, music just really played such a massive role in the cultural shift from, you know, the like stifling heteronormative conventional values of the 50s to the more like free love, pro-experimentation, take it to the street ethos of the 60s. Um, So things like the music industry and then also with that new sex positive publications like Cosmo and Playboy really kind of paved the way and coincided with things like birth control, Roe v. Wade, Loving v. Virginia, Vietnam protests, all all the things like that. Um, anyway, it's crazy to think that music kind of played such an important role in how much that culture really changed within just 10 years. But my tangent is now over. So back to your story about Jay. Totally. All right, back to Jay. In 1964, Sebring started dating a young, aspiring actress named Sharon Tate. Most of you probably know what happens next, but for those who don't, Sebring and Tate, who remained extremely close after they broke up, were brutally murdered by the members of the Manson family cult on August 8th, 1969. The other victims that night were coffee heiress Abigail Folger, Folger's boyfriend, screenwriter Wojciech Frykowski, and 18-year-old Stephen Parent. So Sebring, Folger, and Frykowski were staying there as like guests of Tate, who was eight months pregnant, at the 150 Cielo Drive home that she and husband Roman Polanski were renting. Polanski was in Europe filming a movie at the time, but I just want to clarify, this did not take place at the Harlow Burn house, but something really creepy may have. Tate allegedly did an interview with journalist Dick Kleiner in which she recalled um, like a psychic premonition that possibly predicted her death. So the article ran in Fate magazine, which was basically like a paranormal magazine. We probably Hmm. would have read it. Yeah. Um, The article was called Sharon Tate's Preview of Murder, and it was published the year after her death. So, okay. So like, okay. I already mm-hmm. have questions. Getting, yeah. Getting crazy. So Sharon Tate is murdered in 1969, which means this article got published in 1970. But the, the claim is that the interview in the article took place maybe in like 68. I mean, like I definitely print moves slowly, obviously, but it still seems kind of fishy when it's this type of topic. It just is a little too convenient. Yeah. Well, also, too, like the premonition that she recalls would have happened even earlier than the interview. So that throws the timeline into like a crazy spiral as well. But Mm -hmm. according to the interview, one night while Tate was staying alone in the Harlow burn house. So I think this was when she was probably still dating Jay. Yeah. She woke in the middle of the night to a strange little man in her room. She's so scared. She runs out of the room. But while she's running down the stairs... She sees a figure tied to the staircase mm. with his or her throat slashed. It's said that, that she thought the apparition was either herself or Jay Sebring. She made it herself a drink and pinched herself to make sure she wasn't dreaming, then eventually went back to bed, convinced she's seen the ghost of Paul Byrne. So this is essentially how most versions of the story go, but there's one retelling I found on hauntedhouses.com. That adds a bit more detail. So their story says that when she got downstairs, she couldn't find the like any alcohol. And then she got a sudden urge to push on one of the bookcases, which pops open 
to reveal a hidden bar. So after That's she convenient. made herself, yeah, after she made herself a drink, she got another urge to tear at the wallpaper along like the the base of the bar. Yellow which, wallpaper vibes again, which revealed a solid copper base. The next morning, she woke up still thinking it's just a bad dream till she mm-hmm. goes downstairs and sees the torn wallpaper in the copper base of the bar. I mean, okay, so she was really popular. Does she have any friends who can be like, oh, she did tell me about a weird dream once or, you know? So in 2019, Sharon's sister like publicly debunked the premonition and she straight up said that no one close to Sharon had ever heard this story. So it seems like the interview did run in Fate magazine, like printed copies of it do exist. But the question is more like, was the interview legit? And that's pretty hard to say because her friends and family say no, but it's not totally impossible, you know, like it would make sense if somebody asked her if she had weird experiences in this house because it has a history. After Paul Byrne was found dead there, like the house is marked no matter what. So it's probably creepy falling asleep in a house like in the woods, far away from the city you live in when when you're like somebody partners out of town and you know someone died there. Like it's just creepy. So I'd probably have nightmares too, you know? Totally. One more thing. In the 2009 documentary, The Six Degrees of Helter Skelter, Ronald Hale, who is the current homeowner, mm-hmm. he bought the house from J.C. Ring's parents in 1970. Ronald Hale said that the house was built during Prohibition and does, in fact, have the bookcase with the hidden bar. Wow. And okay. I'm like, well, I only read that like version of the story kind of in like one place, but why would he say that? Why would he bring it up if... Other people hadn't already heard that kind of version of the story. Mm -hmm. Why would he even say it does have the bookcase with the bar? I need to watch that. Yeah, you should. But Hale also said that he and his wife have never experienced anything paranormal there. So, I mean, I I did find a blog post that alleged that by 1969, Jay was becoming wary of the house's reputation Uh. and that a psychic told him, quote, Death awaited him in a house with oh exposed God. beams. Okay, well, so, that's like everywhere in LA, in the hills yeah. especially, but still. So he started spending like a lot less time there. Now, it, that's definitely spooky if true. But otherwise, there aren't too many accounts of like paranormal activity at 9820 Easton Drive outside of Sharon Tate's maybe premonition. So, I mean, that's 9820, but there have been like many accounts of creepy hauntings at Jean Harlow's other house at 1353 Clubview Drive. That's where she married Paul Byrne and where she was when she received the call about his death. Hmm. So that house actually isn't far from Easton Drive. It's about like a 15 minute car ride, but it's a really different setting. It's much bigger than the Easton Drive house. It has the same sort of like country cottage Tudor feel on the outside with mahogany wood and exposed beams inside. There's a really stately fireplace in the living room. It just seems more warm and cozy despite its size than Easton Drive. But then like, weirdly enough, it's the one that's like having all these residual haunting stories. So, Well, did she die there in that house? She was in a hospital when she died. So she didn't die in the oh, house. Okay. And I, but this was I, the house that maybe was like important to her or like pivotal in her right. life. I mean, more. she got married there to Paul Byrne, yeah. which like if she really loved him, then what a way for the marriage to end after only two months. Like the house sold in 1970 for $105,000. And according to hauntedhouses.com, the family that moved in started experiencing weird things 
like immediately. So Mm. the day before they even move in, their dogs were barking and growling at something in the upstairs bedroom. And Mrs. H, that's what they refer to her as, Mrs. H reported hearing someone whisper, please help me in her ear. On their first night in the house, a heavy unseen object struck their bed three times. Another time, Mrs. H reported hearing a woman heavily sobbing. And she also said she saw like a strange formless light floating above her near the ceiling of the living room, which like poor Mrs. H really sounds like she like, she was the one who was like getting all of it. This is the weirdest one. Mr. and Mrs. H both had the same like very clear dream about a faulty light in the upstairs bathroom. So in the dream, they see their bathtub and it's full of bubbles and water. And then a hand reaches up out of the bathtub, touches the light switch and gets electrocuted and then Hmm. withers back into the tub. (laughs) So first of all, it's weird that they had the same dream, but they... Supposedly, they, but they called were both an, probably just really anxious, like, shit, we really have to deal with that light bulb well, upstairs. <laughs> well, they called an electrician and he, sure enough, he comes and he's like, this light switch is very outdated and dangerous and they had huh. to replace it. And so it's almost like the dream was like this, like premonition, you know, coming back to the idea. Yeah, of depending on how you read it. I mean, for me, I'm like, I have dreams when I'm like, oh God, I didn't turn in that assignment. And it turns out like I would have gotten fired if I didn't. So good thing I had the dream. It could be one or the other. They also reported usual stuff like the lights going off and on on their own in the kitchen mm-hmm. and like random cold spots throughout the house. But yeah. I mean, uh, I looked at the the realtor.com like history and the house didn't sell again until 2005. So wow. seems like they maybe could have stuck it out. Yeah. As for Easton Drive, today the property is actually split into two addresses. So the hmm. main house is now at 9810 Easton Drive. It's not currently for sale, but Zillow estimates it's worth $1.8 million. And 9820 Easton Drive now refers to the carriage house and it sold in 2013 for $855,000. So just really going back quickly to the idea of like premonitions and stuff, I kind of wonder though, you know, when something tragic happens and something really violent, it's kind of like you wish that there was something you could have done to prevent it. But like, even if she did have that, what would she have done with that information to like change her fate? Like, it feels like it's like, dabbling almost in like a bit of victim blaming where it's like, if only she had, you know, I don't know. Here's the thing. If it was Paul Burns' ghost coming to, coming to talk to her, not talk to her, but like, you know, somebody sending her a message from beyond to like, watch out. Yeah. Like they can't, they can't spell it out for you. So you kind of have to translate it yourself. Mm -hmm. And I don't think anybody could, would blame her for not understanding what it was. The whole thing is spooky. I got to be honest. I mean, so the 1353 Clubview Drive that Jean Harlow lived at, to me, sounds haunted. But I actually don't know if I think the Paul Byrne house is haunted. Premonition or no premonition, I think it's like jinxed. Like maybe it's cursed or something to me. Like it's not nothing that Paul Byrne dies there and then the next homeowner is connected to this brutal murder. It gets me thinking about like, well, let's go to like the prehistory of all this and look at what happened before. Because it's not that old of a house, you know? No, I mean, it was brand new when Paul Byrne 
commissioned it or whatever. He didn't build it with his own hands, but like yeah. he built it. Oh, by the way, the fourth face is said to look like pictures of Dorothy Millette. I'm glad you brought that up. That I was wondering who it was. And I'm curious with the other Again, unconfirmed, are, but, like, but like, yeah, sketchy. I'm going to Google that. But I wonder too, to your point about like, okay, well, already the, the land, something's up there, but then energy on top of energy. So like mm-hmm. his death could have set off like his death leads to the strong, the energy that connects to JC, you know, like, um, yeah. Does it get worse over time? The more that ba- bad things happen to it, because also to the Cielo drive houses, like five-ish minutes, I think from kind of everywhere you look in LA, you're going to find some kind of dark history, but it all, you know what I mean? Like, I, well, that's, there are that's so my many question though. There. Like, is it haunted or is it Hollywood? That is because that is if you think question. about it, like true crime that happens there is so publicized because mm-hmm. it's Hollywood. It draws people in. It's like a magnet, people who are good and, and, and talented. And then also people who, and who bring a lot of joy and like comedy to the world or like good art. But then it also brings in the Charles Mansons of the world who we could do without. Well, we also were talking about a little bit Jean Harlow and how her stepfather may have been sort of taking advantage of her career to a Mm -hmm. certain extent. Certainly these executives were not thinking of her emotions and, you know, her mental health at the time because they just covered it up to in their own narrative, like not including her at all. And I think it's just like some early signals of how young women go to Hollywood, go to LA, go to California chasing these dreams only to them become like prey to these Totally. Executives. I mean, look at Harvey Weinstein in like our era. I think that's an added layer to like, if we're talking about the idea that like Hollywood, I think is... Is haunted by these like the lost dreams, like not even necessarily by the spirits, but just the the negative energy of like all these unfulfilled dreams, and then out of the layer of like all these women who have been taken advantage of. Yeah, I mean, bringing it back to the house a little. What if you can see the ghost and I can't see the ghost? Like, can other people have access to it in a way that like more rational people can't or people who just aren't open to it or something. I would like to see what it would be like if you went or something. It's like something we would need to like test. We'd have to go together. Yeah. This is our next venture. It's a show where Hadley and I go to houses together and see who runs out first. And I completely dissociate so that I don't lose my mind and have a heart attack out of fear of being there. I don't think I have it in me to do that with you. It's not going to happen today. We can't go do this right now. But I did find somebody who is sensitive, who is, I'll say ghost expert, mm. who's been to 9820 Easton Drive. And so we're going to bring her on and we're going to talk to her about it. Ooh, who is it? Today's guest is celebrity paranormal investigator Bridget Marquardt. Millennials, like real ones, will remember Bridget Mm. from E's 2005 reality show, The Girls Next Door. And so for anybody who's not familiar with that show, it was about Hugh Hefner's three girlfriends who lived with him at the Playboy Mansion. And so all these Playboy connections. No, I know. Everything comes back to Playboy and Elvis. And so I'm starting to feel like we should just do a show on that. But anyways, in addition to hosting her podcast, Ghost Magnet, where she interviews experts in the supernatural field, Bridget is also studying parapsychology. So... I think she'll have a really interesting perspective on like this house and just kind of hauntings in general. Yeah, I'm so curious like what that entails, like what what sort of, especially because it's studying it, like what kind of readings do you do about paranormal Right, stuff? and like where do you take these classes? Like can we go take these classes? 
I feel like that's a really good person to talk to after we just talked about all of that. Just the idea that she like has been in Hollywood and like kind of, you know, has been on TV. She like kind of understands the weeds of that world a little bit. I also am dying to ask her about the Playboy Mansion because, you know, it has like such a long history and is also allegedly haunted. And if you look, I mean, obviously the architectural style of it is really different, but like still this very, they all kind of look like they were in Europe or something. So I'm curious about that too. And the inside was the same thing of the like all the mahogany wood. Like yeah, so kind of like the trope of like a haunted house. So let's go talk to Bridget. Yes. Okay. I'm excited. Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Thank you so much for joining us. Nice to see you. Yeah, of course. I'm excited. I, I love any opportunity to talk ghosts. So do we. And that is why we are here. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd love to just start off talking about the Jean Harlow house. How many times have you been there? Just one time or? Just one time. Okay. And how did you feel about it? Like when you were there, did you get any sort of sense that something was not right. So I didn't get to go inside the house. I was inside. There's this um, giant garage that's really actually very beautiful. And I was in there talking with the owner. And then he was like, feel free to like walk, roam around the property and the pool area and all that kind of stuff. But I didn't get invited in the house itself. Um, so I took pictures out by the pool and on some of like, there's, there's like all these like beautiful little kind of like trails around the house and goes to like orchard fruit trees and up and around the pool and just like up in the hills and stuff like that. So it's really beautiful location. But the problem with that house is it's in Benedict Canyon. And that's the bigger issue there. Benedict Canyon has a crazy history and it's just super spooky. It almost seems like it's cursed there. And there's so many murders and suicides dating way back. Paul Byrne, what happened there? Um, Just all of those things, and they really add up to make you think something more is going on. It's not just that house. It's that whole canyon. That was something that we kind of talked about is just like, is it haunted or is it just jinxed? But I think cursed maybe is the better word than than jinxed. But I guess that makes sense if the whole surrounding area was under some type of curse. Yeah. Well, I mean, Paul Byrne died in the house and then um, Jean Harlow lived in that house, but she didn't die in that house. Um, But she did die very young. And it was also the same age as Sharon Tate, which is, I mean, of course, coincidences like that can happen, but it is a strange sort of, I don't know, parallel that these two beautiful women who were in the same industry, different years, of course, but, you know, kind of represented a similar screen siren um, you know, is eerie at the very least. I'm glad we got to hear about your experience though, because a question I keep coming back to is like, do people have different experiences depending on whether or not they even believe in ghosts or the supernatural? Like can two people go into the same house and come away with completely different opinions about whether or not it's haunted? And depending on what your background is, how you were raised, if you're religious or if you 
aren't, then you can describe the same experience and make sense of the same experience totally differently from the next person. So I think that has a big role in it too. And I think some people are just more open to it as well. They're just more in tune with that side of things. And Mm -hmm. some people are looking for it like me. Like I'm everywhere I go, I'm like, how do I feel in here? What is the sense that I'm feeling? And other people are kind of like in another zone and they're not paying attention to those small cues like that. So when you're investigating and you're like kind of checking in with your body and seeing how a space feels, like what are the sensations you feel when you've felt like something was there? Um, It's always the same for me when I go in. I have this, uh, I don't even have to go in. Sometimes it's just on the outside. I get this pressure on my chest and in my throat kind of almost feels like it's sort of closing off, like it's hard to breathe, like very, very heavy. Everything just gets very heavy. And I always feel like "Mm, something's not right in here. Something's off. And I love it. (laughs) Are you always scared when that happens? I'm not scared at all. Um, Makes me want to go investigate it. Makes me want to look into it more. Have you always felt this way? Yeah. So um, I I tell people that I think I was sort of born spooky because I've always had an interest in scary stories and 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 spooky movies. And even before, like I should have been watching that kind of stuff. I was like the first one to run to the horror section at Blockbuster or whatever. I'm like, I want this massacre movie. My mom's like, whatever. <laughs> um, when I was 12, I took my babysitting money and I went and bought my first Ouija board. And I made my um, cousin play with me. Uh, we didn't really know that many people who had passed away at that young of an age. Um, so the one person I did know and was fairly close to was my great-grandfather had just passed away. So I said, I'm going to reach out to him. So we were playing with the Ouija board and uh, we were asking questions and it was answering. It was moving. But eventually I was blaming her and she was blaming me. So we got bored and we put it away. And then, um, I don't know, like a few days later, I was, I came home from school, home by myself, and um, I heard the back door slam open. And I thought, oh, that's weird. I obviously didn't close the door tight, you know, so I got up and um, went to, into the laundry room, got to the back door, um, closed the door, and then went back into the living room. And all of a sudden, I heard it again. And I was like, that's really weird. What's going on? Somebody's messing with me. Somebody's home and messing with me or whatever. So I got up, went to the back door, got went out on the porch, like looked around. Nobody was out there. So I shut the door and I like checked it. Like, is it is the latch broken or something? No, it seems to be shutting fine. Okay, whatever. So then I went back into the living room. A few minutes later, I hear it open again. And I was like, this time I'm scared. Like somebody is here. Something's going on. And so I got up and I was like all cautious and nervous. And I went into the laundry room, doors wide open. I go out on the porch and I'm looking around. Nobody is out there. So I quickly shut the door and locked it. And as I was walking out of the laundry room, down the hall, I saw my great grandfather standing there. And after that, I just started having like dreams and I could feel being watched and was having like all kinds of paranormal experiences. And it wasn't like some guardian angel, like this is amazing. It was scary. And um, my family didn't know what to do. They weren't into the paranormal. They don't know anything about it. They just talked to other family members. And some people said she needs to see a psychiatrist. And other people were like, <laughs> she needs to see the priest or whatever. So they kind of did both. The psychiatrist gave me some good advice. And she said that I should go to his grave and tell him to please make it stop. And even if it's not him doing it, if it's something else, because it didn't feel you know sweet and grandfatherly, it felt 
scary and evil. And um, she said, even if it's not him doing it, he might be able to help make it stop. And so I did. I went to his graveside and I talked to him about it. And um, eventually it went away. But I've been intrigued with the paranormal ever since. And everywhere I go, I want to stay at haunted places. And even before ghost hunting was like a thing people did on TV and people knew about and stuff, I would be like, okay, at midnight, we're going to run around with like a camera and we're going to like go ghost hunting. We're going to go all the spots that are supposed to be, look, people have seen ghosts and that kind of stuff. So I've been like ghost hunting in a different way, but in a, in a way, um, ever since then. And I know you're taking parapsychology classes now, which is so cool. So I wanted to ask where you're taking them and if anyone can sign up. Anybody can take them. I take them through, um, the Rhine Center. It's very like a college course, you know, it's very kind of, uh, from a scientific approach and it talks about the different, um, ideas on that. It tells you like what a skeptic might say. And then it also tells you what the research shows and all the studies that they have done and different experiments that they have done. And we read through, uh, journal articles, but you're shown both sides and then you're asked to write about it and talk about it and those kinds of things. So, um, yeah, but basically you make your own decision at the end. Where did you land? Like, how do you feel about it now? I think 100% something survives the bodily death. Your consciousness, your soul, whatever you want to call it, your um, brain is separate from your mind. And your brain can die, but the mind, your consciousness lives on. I don't know how else to explain these near-death experiences that people have had. I don't know how else to explain some of these reincarnation cases that people know things about, like little two-year-old kids who can tell you about how their their plane was shot down in World War II and and give you names and dates and exactly details of the engine and that kind of stuff. Have you read Many Lives, Many Masters? I have. I love that book. Me too. Speaking of books, do you have any other favorites that you've read in your classes or just for fun as you've been researching? Yeah. So um, Dr. Bruce Grayson, I'm looking at my books right over here. Uh, Dr. Bruce Grayson uh, just came out with a book called After, and it's all about near-death experiences and what people have experienced in in detail. Like lots of, he's done like 40 years of studies on this. And I just find that all fascinating because people with near-death experiences from all over the world have almost identical experiences and they are clinically dead. So either we don't really understand what clinically dead means or something survives that death. And they they see themselves outside of their body. They can tell you what people were doing in the, the surgery room or operating room or emergency room next to them, what people were saying, what they were using, like very specific details. And not only that, but simultaneously, they're going through a life review and through the tunnel or walking over the bridge that people talk about and the lights and the colors that they can't even explain because we don't even have the colors here on this side. The people that they've talked to, wow. they're able to bring back some sometimes um, veridical information from the other side that they couldn't have known otherwise. So they're always told that it's not your time or you need to go back. And a lot of times they don't want to because it's so amazing. They they talk about this amazing feeling of um, peace and love and like it all being one. I think too what you said about how they're people who have these um, near-death experiences when they come back to this reality. They don't have the vocabulary um, to explain the colors that they're seeing. And if it's colors that they can't explain, then I'm sure there's a whole host oh, they of said, things that they're experiencing that we just can't wrap our minds yeah, around. Yeah, you know? they say there are no words. I cannot describe to you how I felt, what it was, what I saw. There's There are no words in our language to describe it. 
and mediums will say that too. I can only tell you like kind of what I'm seeing, but I can't really explain to you what what it really is because there aren't really words to tell you how I'm how I'm communicating and what I'm seeing and stuff. It wouldn't make sense, and I there isn't words for it. Do you think, um, kind of going back to the whole premonition that a reporter said Sharon Tate had told him about, do you think that dreams or things that happen in our like semi-conscious state are at all similar to that? Or do you think that's a totally different type of like brain activity? I don't know. So I had a really um, crazy dream. I, I typically do not remember my dreams. I'm really bad at it. And I tr- I'm trying. I'm doing little tricks that people have told me and I'm trying to remember them. And every once in a while I do. But um, one night I had this dream and it was not long after Hef had died. And um, I was I was um, sad because I didn't get invited to his funeral. I did, and I tried to go up to visit him for like a year and a half uh, in the last year year or two of his life and was not allowed to. And so I kind of felt like I didn't have any closure or goodbye or anything like that. And a few months after he died, I had this dream. And this dream was like nothing I've ever had before. It was so real that I, and I was driving up to the mansion and I talked to the rock security at the rock. They let me in and, um, I could tell that the house was sort of abandoned and he was gone, but yet I was there to see him. So, you know, dreams just don't make sense. I walked inside. It was kind of dark, but the music was playing, which is spooky. Cause it's like really old 1940s style music, like Al Boley playing and stuff. And then all of a sudden he comes down the stairs and he threw his arms out and he gave me what we call his big laugh, like this big cackle that he did. And he said, my darling. And he put his arms around me. And like, I felt the hug. I could feel his smoking jacket. I could smell his cologne. Like it was so real. And when I woke up, I was like, I was telling my fiance, I was like, oh my God, that was just like, that was crazy. That was so real. Like I I can't even tell you, I feel like I just left the mansion. Like, I feel like that really happened. It was almost like I could still smell his cologne on me and stuff. Like I was still, it was so, so real. And, and I've talked to people about that since. And they were like, that wasn't just a dream. It wasn't just a dream. There's dreams aren't, you don't usually have a sense of smell and touch and all those senses in a dream that happened, but it happened at like this unconscious level. That is so interesting. Because like when you're waking, when you're falling asleep and when you're waking up, like that's your most psychic time, they say. Like that's the time where you can really tap in. Now, I feel like I kind of go from asleep to like, there is that groggy time, but I feel like I'm awake enough to where I'm not like trying to do, I'm not even thinking about psychic stuff or whatever. But right in that time when you're just about to doze off or just about to wake up, those are like the times where you're supposed to really grasp for any kind of psychic or mediumistic Well, it makes stuff. sense because it's that liminal space of neither here nor there. And that in like every movie or book that I've read about this, it's whether it's fiction or they say it's not fiction, that seems to be the time where our version of reality isn't the only one that exists. Mm, yeah. So that makes sense. Did you find any like feelings of closure after that? I or? did. I did actually. I felt like I, I literally felt like I said goodbye to him. Then it was real. If you've, if you had any kind of, you know, like real, um, I think, you know, release, mm-hmm. then it, then it's real. You get to decide yeah. that. Yeah. And he was good. I feel like it wasn't just a dream. I'd love to talk more about the Playboy Mansion and your time there. 
I listened to the episode of Ghost Magnet when you interviewed Holly Madison and you guys talked about some of your spooky experiences. And she told a story about seeing a female apparition in the gym at the mansion. But I was wondering, did you ever see anything? Um, Holly did have that gym experience, but I don't, she didn't really believe and she didn't really know what she saw. So she kind of, I think she just didn't know how to wrap her head around that at that time. And then, um, and then the day that I got my dog Wednesday and brought her home, we were, um, I had her in like a little pin at the end of my bed and all her stuff in there and she was sound asleep and my sister and myself and my friend Stacy were all sitting on my bed and we were talking, having a glass of wine, TV was on and um, all of a sudden out of the corner of all of our eyes, we saw a woman standing in my closet area and there's Ugh. no, there's no exit out there and I'm on the second floor and there's no other doorway in my room unless you came in through a window or something. So there's a woman standing there in my doorway and I went, <gasps> and I turned to look and of course when I turn to look, it's straight on, it's gone. But my sister, who's a scaredy cat, immediately just started crying. And my um, my friend Stacy, who is also a scaredy cat, she just put her hands over her her eyes and she was like, "Oh my God, what was that? What was that? What was that? What was that?" And I saw, even though it was out of the corner of my eye, I feel like I saw fairly clearly what it was. Um, it was a woman, and she had uh, black, long, kind of stringy hair, a little bit of a of a um, bend to it, like this. And she was very pale, very skinny. And she was wearing a white T-shirt that looked way too big on her. And she had on um, acid, like black acid wash jeans. And she was just standing there staring. And I recognized her. I Before I lived at the mansion, like a couple of years before, I came there to test for play. I, I was um, invited to come test for Playmate. And so I stayed at the mansion for like two nights. And the, I met this woman who was a social secretary at the mansion. She was um, super friendly. We stayed up all night chatting. And um, she was kind of like the house mom. Like she knew about all the pets and she knew about all the girls. And one of the girls was fighting with her boyfriend at a party outside, like a Playmate. And she came in and was like talking to her, like therapy style. Like she was just amazing. But when I came back a few years later and actually started living there, I found out that she had passed away of cancer. And um, I am pretty sure that it was her that was standing there. And I think that she came to see the new addition to the mansion, the the new pet that was there. She came to see Winnie. It was shocking, but it wasn't scary. And then, um, like, I was never afraid to be in my room after that or anything. Like, I didn't feel like there was something spooky going on. Like, I felt like she showed up. She was just seeing that. We saw her, whether we were supposed to or not, and I don't know. That's a good distinction, the the idea of being scared because something is posing a threat to you versus we might feel scared or it might, you know, bring up our spidey senses because we're just not sure what it is. And it's easy to be afraid of something we don't understand. Yeah, well, I mean, anything could shock me right now. Something could fall over in here and I would be shocked and scared. And then yeah. I'd go, oh, it was, you know, this thing that wasn't very steady anyway. And then I'd be like, oh, no, okay, I wasn't scared. But I could be, I'll be scared mm-hmm. at the moment because, take, you know, it shocks you. But it's not because mm-hmm. it's scary necessarily. What's also interesting, I feel like just because you saw her doesn't mean that the mansion's haunted. Like, I don't think there needs to be a dark energy in the space for somebody to come through. But that also doesn't mean that the mansion's not haunted because obviously there's kind of like a little bit of lore there. 
Yeah, well, there's um, that's just one a couple of particular ghost stories. There's an, an original ghost story that uh, Hef told me when I moved in that Mrs. Letts, the original owners were the Letzes, and Mrs. Letts was either pushed, fell, or jumped to her death onto the marble floor off the balcony, and that she haunts and and people have ghost stories dating back decades from that mm-hmm. the mansion. Brian Alea, who he used to help put on all the parties and was in charge of all the butlers and that kind of stuff at the mansion. He was waiting for Cooper, which is have son, to get done having a meeting in the library because he needed to set it up for a movie night. And it was cutting it close on time. He was supposed to be done. The door was locked, which is kind of weird to lock the door because they don't usually do that. Couldn't figure out why he wasn't coming out. And he's getting nervous and uh, needed to get it ready. So finally he called down to security and they log everybody on and off the property and was asking, uh, you know, it didn't, uh, Cooper hasn't left yet. Like what time is this mo- meeting supposed to be over? And um, security said, what do you mean he left a half hour ago? And Brian was like, wait, the door is locked. He must've gone out the back door, which goes outside directly outside and left that door locked. So he goes to the back door and that's locked too. But the only way to lock the doors are from the inside. So both are locked from the inside, meaning somebody has to be in there to lock them. So um, he asked security to come with the, the master keys to the house to unlock it. And when they got there, the door was wide open. Wow. So things like that, like just like and, – and like also the housekeeping, we're always afraid to go out and clean the game house. And I will tell you, there is something off about that game house. Every time I walk out there, it's just not a place I want to be alone. And why? Why would that be? It's, it's pinball machines and Pac-Man and it's, you know, like a fun room. Like why would you be scared to be out there? But there's something about that room I never – felt right when I was in there and supposedly housekeeping always didn't like to go out there either and so they'd always ask for a butler or security to go with them and I asked like what did they experience and he said slamming doors games turning on on their own they just didn't like the feeling out there and it's exactly what I felt and I've also experienced the games just turning on by themselves out there not slamming doors though I mean, I don't know how anyone can even top your stories, but since you've had so many amazing guests on your podcast, I wanted to ask, like, what's the scariest story you've heard from someone who's been on your show? Uh, let's see. One of the scariest stories that I've heard are that probably about a prison that somebody went to and there was, uh, there's a thing and it's not so human-like at first, but then it kind of takes on a human shape, and it looks like something is crawling towards you, like on their hands and knees, and then it turns uh. and like looks at you, but it can shape-shift kind of snake-like. I think that was one of the scariest stories, and I've heard it for two, twice now from people at the same place. The idea of it like lurking and slithering on the floor is so scary to it me. It is. It reminds me of those stories you used to hear when you were a little kid, too, about like the person who escaped from some kind of prison or something like that hiding under your bed. Just the idea of things being in corners and and hiding where you think you're alone is so eerie. Yeah, for sure. I mean, last thing you want to do is let your foot hang off the edge of your bed. Oh, I literally (laughs) won't even let like one toe be not under the covers. Like why? I don't know, but and and everybody knows that when you get under the covers then you're safe. You got to like pull the covers over your head. (laughs) This comforter is going to protect me. (laughs) It's our armor. One last question I wanted to ask you is, do you have any advice for people who sort of like me are really initially freaked out by this stuff that is um, either kind of some words of affirmation about how to trust your gut, but also um, how to not be so afraid of it and to demystify some of these um, scary stories? I think that um, realizing that ghosts are just people too, 
they're just dead people. I mean, they, but they are, um, they're people and people have been able to communicate with them and, um, assuming that it's not a haunting because a haunting is just residual and that that's nothing to be afraid of. Cause that's just trapped energy or like imprinted energy. But like if it's a, it's a intellectual thing that's actually trying to communicate with you or making itself seen and, and heard, then, um, just to remember that they are people too. And they just have something they want to tell you or show you. That's good advice. Also, taking parapsychology classes will bring you a whole new aspect of everything that's going on and what how it's really happening. It's like sci- scientifically. I know people don't think that parapsychology is science, but it really is. And they do actual experimental studies. And um, they really have done a lot of work in the last like 150 years of research in, in this area. So it gives you a whole new kind of perspective on everything and what's been done in the past to try and study it. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I feel like we learned a ton. At least I learned a ton. And hopefully we'll be a little less scared next time. I think I see a ghost. Also, before you jump off, where can people listen to Ghost Magnet and where can they follow you? Um, Ghost Magnet is available everywhere you have podcasts. So Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, iHeartRadio, you name it, it's there. Um, It's Ghost Magnet with Bridget. And you can follow me on Instagram at Bridget Marcourt, uh, on Twitter at Bridget, and on Facebook at Bridget Marcourt. So, yeah. Awesome. That was fascinating. That was... Like, everything she said. Everything she said. Like, also, I didn't expect the stories about the mansion to scare me as much. Not even scare me, but, like, those were really, like... I mean, I was scared. Basically, the woman who she saw, the apparition with, like, the black hair, it always reminds me of that, like, horror movie trope. Or, like, I mean, I love Haunting of Hill House on Netflix, that show. But the second season, it's all about this like woman in a lake. And that's kind of how I envision it. Like, even if that's not how she saw it, though, my mind's eye like painted a picture for me that is super eerie and haunting. For me, I feel like I was like more, like it had more impact on me because of the connection of how she she knew her. And when I, when I hear yeah. that, when I hear like they're seeing ghosts and then they're seeing someone you knew. And that, that one, yeah, me, that made me less scared, honestly. But like, the fact that she just got her dog and this woman was like so involved with the pets at the Playboy Mansion yeah. to me is like unquestionable. Like also the fact that her sister and her friend saw too. I mean, you often hear these stories, you know, lights flickering. I feel like those types of hauntings are much more common, but also can be explained by natural things, not necessarily supernatural things. Seeing a full body apparition, the only like natural quote unquote thing that you can use to explain that is that you're all having like a shared hallucination or that it's actually a real person and you guys just, it's a stranger who looks a lot like your old friend. I don't know, but like, it feels like that's a much rarer interaction with a ghost is seeing them in like, you know, a 3D way, not just like a shadow or whatever it is. So that's interesting to me. Like that person must have really wanted to come back if we're, if it was a ghost. Now that we've heard from Bridget and she, she said she didn't really feel anything off when she was there. I've decided like, I don't think that the Paul Byrne house is haunted. I'm leaning into the the jinx cursed of it all. But I I'm not ruling out that Paul Byrne could have like visited Sharon Tate as a the premonition. Also like this this episode is hmm. full of dreams and and premonitions. I 
was shook yeah. by the Hef dream. Like, I felt really? that. Wait, tell me why. It just sounded like 1,000%, I believe, he visited her to say goodbye. But I just, I don't know. I find it harder to wrap my mind around that, although it is sort of similar to like what we were talking about with Paul Byrne. I just feel like her, she's the one though representing it, you know, like Sharon Tate isn't speaking for herself here today, telling us that she had that dream. This one is direct from Bridget. So it kind of has a different um, impact, I think. Yeah. Either way, no matter what happened, I think that like, as long as like, if it brought somebody a sense of closure, then like that's the, confirming that Mm -hmm. as being real is like the most important. But I also am just like how weird that she even has that story. And like, we were talking about Sharon Tate's like something premonition and just like- I know, exactly. Not knowing what was real and what wasn't. Just comes back to what we said last week about like not being able to prove things, not being able to answer our own questions. And that's what's scary. And then, and then you throw Hollywood into the mix. And also like you're in a place too where there's like screenwriters and where it's people are like creating and crafting narratives. It's like the one, you always want to have some sort of solution, right? storytelling I think gives us the opportunity to kind of like deal with those kind of like things that just don't satiate us in the real world anyway I feel like the things that we've been trying to like get to the bottom of are like I like your question about is it Hollywood or is it haunted and I think it's both and it depends on our definition of what haunting means what's the definition of haunted because I think some of these homes are haunted by their history coming back to like is it Hollywood or is it haunted it's like reputation really it doesn't matter once you get a bad mark on your reputation even if you kind of clear a name in a way people remember like they do not forget and so that stuff stays with you the same is true of homes and properties and it impacts the way that we experience that place you know like if I hear that that happened there I'm gonna be a little bit more on edge or not my best self or something you know like it's not just our own memories that we're experiencing when we're in these places that have a rich history we're also experiencing the the like pain that they went through if we know about it. Yeah. So, okay. I don't know if you're ready for me to like transition into giving you a hint about my house next week, but you said something that reminded me of it and I feel like it's a good hint. So, okay. I thought of a quote from James Baldwin where he says, people are trapped in history and history is trapped in them. And I feel like it encapsulates my story very well and the region of my story very well. And if since that's kind of vague, I'll also tell you, since this is sort of connected, that there is a big Hollywood movie that inspired or that was inspired by what happened. Well, okay. If Hollywood movie is the clue, my brain automatically goes to like Amityville horror or The Conjuring, but I just don't think you would be that obvious. So I have to think on it more. Yeah. You're pretty far off to be totally honest, but that's okay. Right. Yeah. No, no judgment here. Um, and the same thing is applied to any listeners out there. If you have any guesses, please leave them in the Apple podcast reviews. And of course, if you also want to share any stories about being in Benedict Canyon or really anywhere in LA or anywhere on the world, really, please do that as well. We love to hear these stories. We really do. Okay. Well, I'm going to let you do some thinking and some do a little cleanse after you just had to read about all this stuff. So I will go do some research and prep and get ready for next week. Sounds good. Can't wait. Thanks for listening to this episode of Dark House. If you're looking for even more spooky stories, head to housebeautiful.com slash darkhouse to check out some of our favorites. Or if you're totally freaked out and need a distraction, you can do what I do and look at pretty interiors to calm down. 
To unlock all of our exclusive home tours and get the magazine delivered right to your door, sign up for our membership program at housebeautiful.com slash join now.